Warning, although this podcast revolves around Disney, Disney movies, and Disney-related themes, we have a tendency to use mature language, which is not suitable for all ages. Discretion is advised. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for another edition of the Ocho and Ortiz Disney Podcast, and we're going to be doing a review which we weren't sure about when I first decided to review this movie. So what are we reviewing? Stick with us and find out. That's right, everybody. The Ocho and Ortiz Disney Podcast is back in your life. And apologies for another hiatus. We weren't expecting to take this long of a hiatus again. But things have come up. Josh's internet wasn't working. I'm back to work now for the first time in three months since COVID sort of set the world in a pandemic. So it's sort of been chaotic with me trying to get back to normal and Josh trying to get his internet fixed. So we took a little bit longer break again than I was expecting, and I have made a decision going forward. So instead of releasing episodes weekly, we are going to do a bi-weekly release schedule. Josh and I will still record weekly, but we will release them once every two weeks. That way, if anything does come up for either of us in life, at work, in general, whatever, we'll still have some shows in the pipe that we can have ready for you guys to listen to if we're not able to record for a week or two. So we are recording this on July the 2nd. It will be released on... Give me a sec here. So this episode will be released on July the 12th. And then we'll be doing one episode every two weeks after that in terms of releases. I think that's going to be easier for both Josh and I. I, I this is the first time Josh is hearing it, so I'm I'm hoping he's he's amicable to this. Yeah, sounds good. So that's what's happening going forward. I do want to give a quick shout out to Straight Talk Wrestling, our boy George McKay. He's doing some really, really great interviews in the wrestling world. So if you're a wrestling fan, be sure you follow him. Again, it's Straight Talk Wrestling. He just did uh, an interview recently with Vicky Guerrero. He's doing Nug, the GM of Greektown, on the episode that he's releasing. Well, I think it actually came out today as of this recording. But George is a really great guy. He's been supportive of our wrestling podcast. He's been supportive of this podcast. So... If you're a wrestling fan, go give him a follow. And I'm really excited. I got buttons in today. The Ocho and Ortiz (laughs) Disney Podcast buttons. So I'm really, really happy about that. And guys, of course, you know, you know where to find us on social medias. I am working on getting a Patreon going for this podcast. And once I do, the buttons will be a part of that patreon so for anyone that does a a donation of three dollars or more you'll be able to get stuff like the buttons we have stickers so just sort of little flair here and there promotional things for the show i will keep you guys posted on social media when the patreon is up and ready to go Speaking of our social medias, you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. You can follow us on Instagram at Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. Or you can find us on Twitter at Ocho Ortiz Disney. And of course, you can find us on most major podcasts and platforms. Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our main source of uploading is Podbean, Ocho and Ortiz, DisneyPod.Podbean.com. Please feel free to subscribe, to give us a like, to leave us a comment, and to share us with your friends. It would greatly, we would greatly appreciate it, and it would help us more than you know. 
We've been getting a lot of fe- great feedback recently from our previous couple of episodes. A lot of shares on the Muppet Christmas Carol episode. A lot of shares on the Maleficent episode. So we really appreciate that. And guys, feel free to interact with us because, you know, I do try to answer as many questions as I can. And I, I love hearing feedback from you guys. So if you feel like it, give us some feedback. As of what we're talking about today, initially when we were going to record this podcast like two weeks ago at this point, Josh, I had told you that I wasn't sure what I wanted to review because it was my turn to pick something. And so I told you at one point I had narrowed it down to like four things. And I can't even remember the ones that I had it narrowed down to at this point. I can't even remember if I told you what I had it narrowed down to. You did. Give me one second. I'll find it. Yeah, I'm sure it's in your in your text messages somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But. I remember it was Darkwing Duck. Oh, yes. Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Or what we're actually reviewing. Yes, what we are actually reviewing today, which is a documentary from 2009 called Waking Sleeping Beauty. And neither you or I really had any idea what to expect from that movie. But I saw in the description box that it was basically a documentary covering 10 years from 1984 to 1994 in the Disney animation department and the renaissance of the Disney animated film. And I'm so glad I picked this film. I have now watched it three times. It's it's such a good film for anybody that has not seen it. Yeah, no, I remember when you when you when that was one of the options. I fully said, "What is Waking Sleeping Beauty?" Because I had no idea what that was. But then once you told me, I was like, "All right, cool. Yeah, no, I'm I'm down to watch it." It sounded like, um, God, what's that other one that I, that I, that's really good? It's like an actual document, uh, the Imagineering story. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The series on Disney Plus. Yeah. So then after I watched it, I literally texted, texted you right away. I'm like, okay, this was a great choice. This is <laughs> fucking fantastic. I've watched it, I think, three times as well. And yeah, no, it's it was really, really well done. Yes. Yeah. So the film was put together by Don Han, who was the producer on Lion King, I believe, as well as Beauty and the Beast. He was a producer on a couple of the animated films during the D- Disney Renaissance, but he was the one that that put together this documentary of like sort of home videos and unreleased interviews with people behind the scenes at Disney and stuff. And it was really, really good. So we're just going to jump right into it. So this film sort of jumps back and forth a few times, like throughout the years. So it starts off in 1994 with Elton John doing the musical recordings for The Lion King. And then there's like a little blurb, a little script that comes up on the screen that says, From 1984 to 1994, a perfect storm of people and circumstances changed the face of animation forever. And then Don Han, obviously he put together this film and he's also the narrator of it. And, oh, I have the note right here. He was the executive producer of Lion King, and he was also the executive producer of the movie we reviewed last time out, Maleficent. So he is is still with the company. So he's been there God knows how long. Because I think in the movie, he said he started there in the mid to late 70s. So he's been with Disney for like 40 years at this point. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, I didn't know he. I didn't know he was on the on the Maleficent movie. Yeah, neither did I. I yeah, not when I was watching the movie. I didn't know, but when I was taking notes, I sort of just want to find out what other movies he had been producer on. Because in the movie, he does mention that he at the beginning of the movie he mentions that he was the producer on The Lion King. So I wanted to see what else he he had done. And on his IMDb page, he was the executive producer for for Maleficent as well. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. So we've sort of covered movies involving Don Han two weeks in a row now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's pretty awesome. And so Don starts off talking about how Lion King was set to come out and that everybody was 
preparing for the traditional staff and crew release party. And speeches were normally speeches from the cast and crew, er, well, not the crew so much, but like the the cast, the animators, as well as the bosses of Disney, people like Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Roy Disney, Frank Wells, they would usually give speeches at the party. However, for the release party of Lion King, Don Han had decided to videotape all of the speeches from Eisenberg, Katzenberg, and... Roy Disney. And Roy Disney. This is this is Walt's nephew, Roy, not his yeah. brother, Roy. Roy E. Disney. Yes. So Walt's brother was Roy O. Disney, and then Roy's son was Roy E. Disney. Yeah. So Han had decided to record speeches from Katzenberg, Eisner, and Roy Disney instead of instead of having them do it live at the release party because they they don't me- they don't mention it until later in the film but basically there was such an immense amount of tension between the three of the bigwigs at Disney Disney Eisenberg and and Katzenberg that or sorry I keep saying Eisenberg because I, I, I'm thinking Jesse Eisenberg Eisner, Eisner Michael Eisner I'm so sorry but there was such a rift between Eisner, Katzenberg, and, and Disney that Han had basically decided to pre-record the speeches rather than have them do it live. We then go back in time and they talk about how Walt Disney had started moving before Walt passed away, how he had started moving away from animated films and started to go more into live action films with stuff like Mary Poppins, as well as focus more on the theme parks, Disney World and Disneyland. So they talk about how, you know, they sort of moved away from from the animated feature which had made Disney this big household name back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and that they were moving on to new and different media and entertainment. They then talk about Disney's financial struggles and the problems with their film department, primarily the animation department, which I find funny now that... uh, Disney is one of the biggest corporations, and as I'm finding out firsthand from trying to get merchandise from this podcast, (laughs) everybody is just afraid at the mere mention of the Disney name. They're afraid that they're going to get sued, which is why it's hard for us to get our podcast onto merchandise because it says Disney podcast on it and no one wants to no one wants to host our merchandise selling page when it says Disney because I've come up with a few alternate designs and I've basically been told that because it has the word Disney in there people are afraid that they'll get sued by the company so it, I just I just find it funny that like 30 years ago the company was on the brink of bankruptcy and now they're like one of the most powerful corporations that have bought out a bunch of other studios and that everybody is afraid of getting sued by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now like look at nowadays, yeah, they're the biggest they are the biggest company, right? Yep. Buying absolutely anything and everything. Yep, they're definitely the biggest company. They have Marvel, they have a lot of Fox properties, um Star Wars, Star Lucas Films. So yeah, they they have they've, they're one of if not the biggest corporation out there right now. So yeah, it's it's just funny how far they've come. And I can't remember who was who they said it was that was planning on buying Disney, but basically the person that was planning on buying Disney in the oh. 80s wanted to completely break it up and and just sell it off for their own further profit. So yeah, so so that that guy, he's he's actually they they talk about him in the Imagineering story. And it wasn't just like Disney. That's literally what he did for like a living was he would buy a whole bunch of like shares in the company and then he'd buy almost have like a majority of it. And then he would go out and like sell off the companies into unless the uh, unless the other like people within the company bought him out, which is what Disney did. Yeah. Roy, Roy Disney ended up buying out shares to make sure that he didn't end up getting majority control of the company. And then once once 
Roy bought his shares, he brought in Frank Wells and Michael Eisner from Paramount in a move to try to save the Disney company. Michael Eisner then brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg to head Disney's film and animation department. Katzenberg came in to the animation department as they were working on The Black Cauldron, and it was mentioned in the movie that The Black Cauldron cost $44 million to make back in 1983, I think is when it was ended up being released, and it did less than half of that at the box office. It only made $21.3 million, and the documentary points out the fact that it was beat out at the box office by the Care Bears movie, and that that was pretty much rock bottom for Disney animation. Yeah, Katzenberg also talks about how when he did come in during that time, how he's like, well, this is very dark. We need to, like, edit it and cut some stuff out. And they're like, what are you talking about? It's an animated movie. You can't do that. He's like, of course you can. So he had to, he's like, he told them to, you know, bring him the finished film and he would show them how to edit an animated movie. Yeah, so he taught, and at the time, a lot of the animators were still Walt's nine old men, although they were starting to retire and a newer, younger bunch of artists were coming into the animation department. But at the time of the Black Cauldron, it was still mostly Walt Disney's nine old men. And, of course, they were stubborn in their ways with how they wanted to do things. And Katzenberg, as you mentioned, basically showed them how to edit an animated film and how to make cuts and stuff on it. Yeah, because they were they, they were stuck in their ways. And he, he said that he found that a lot of the older crew would always ask, well, what would Walt do, right? Mm-hmm. And they were saying, you know, basically when Katzenberg came in, he's like, you know, you can't let this be run by someone who's been dead for for how lo- however long now you know, at that at that point it would have been about 16 17 years yeah exactly so did you you know you know what i noticed when they were showing some of the newer artists that were coming in i thought it was really cool was i didn't realize that tim burton was one of them yeah the- yeah i didn't notice I, I i didn't know that either and, and I, I knew he did a couple things like with um the movie you hate so much forget what it's called nightmare before elm street no, or not night night nightmare before christmas sorry <laughs> nightmare on elm street is a fantastic series by the way i, I um, if, if they combine nightmare on elm street with nightmare before christmas i think i might actually enjoy that movie <laughs> but yeah the picture that i have up on the screen for those of you watching the video podcast is basically like one of the first batch of disney animated artists from their animated school cow arts and I believe in the movie they said that this picture was taken from in 1975. I don't think Tim Burton is in there. I can't. I can't see Tim Burton in there. No, I don't think. I don't think that's him in the back with his hand up to his mouth beside yeah, oh, the girl. Beside the girl. Yeah. Yeah. That might be so. him, but I don't think so. But yeah. So, anyways, a lot of people. Who, who's the other? Shit. There were a couple of really, really big names that I had no idea had started at Disney. Lassiter, John Lassiter, who ended up going oh, okay. on to Pixar, he he started off with Disney as well. So yeah, th- there were so many names there that I had never known started off with Disney. I just thought that they worked with Disney at like later points in their career. Mm-hmm. But they so after the failure of Black Cauldron. Because Jeffrey Katzenberg was not only the in charge of the animated film department, he was also in charge of the live action film department, and he wanted a bigger space to bring in more stars for Disney live action films, so he ended up closing the animated studios on the Disney lot, and they ended up moving to Glendale, California, And basically, all the animators that were working at Disney at the time thought that was it. They thought that was the complete death of the Disney animated department. And I'm trying to think of what the movie was that they were working on at the time. Uh, After that, was it not? Fuck it. Oh, God. The Great Mouse Detective. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So I was going to say Oliver and Company, but that was much later. Yeah, I think it was Great Mouse Detective. 
but I, I think there was something else in between Cauldron and, and, and Great Mouse Detective, but I can't remember what it was. But anyways... Oh, so, was it Who Framed Roger Rabbit? No, because that would have been around the same time as Oliver and Company. Those were both like 88. Great Mouse Detective was 86, but I think there was something that they were working on that ended up being released in 84 or 85. Because Cauldron, I think, was 83 or 84. Hold on, let me, let me look this up. Give me one sec. Black Cauldron was 85. Yeah, so it had to be... Had to be Great Mouse Detective, because that, that's what came out after Black Cauldron, from what I can find. So had had to be Great Mouse Detective that they were working on when they ended up getting moved to the studios in Glendale. But they talk about the fact that the studios in Glendale, because it was like so run down, it was also a much more open space, and it actually allowed for more ideas to flow more freely because people couldn't just hide in like their own offices and their own cubicles. So people were having a lot more discussions and a lot more input. So it seemed like moving to this to this studio in Glendale actually really helped the animated department a lot. You yeah, s- sorry, and yeah, no, it was. I, I like that part when they. Uh, they thought they were like you know they were gonna get fired and everything and then yeah. they decided to do that recreation of Apocalypse Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The animators decided to do do their own version of Apocalypse Now amongst each other in the studios. <laughs> Seeing all those little those little videos or like the homemade things that was really funny. Yeah, the the great the great mouse detective. I what what I found cool about it was that it was originally gonna be called Basil of of Baker Street. Yep. Right, because it's based off a, a, a children book series, and then when they switched the name, the animators, one of the animators, got mad. Well, not that he got mad, but he 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 put out a joke, a joke memo from, oh, what was his name? It's Peter something, right? Yeah, Peter Schneider. Peter Schneider. Yeah, where he made it look like it came from him. Where they were changing all, where it said we are now changing all the names of all the Disney movies, and like Snow White would be, what was it, Seven Men Help a Help a Girl or something, and Cinderella was going to be like uh, Glass Shoes or something like that. The girl it with the see-through shoes. The girl with the see-through shoes, yes. But yeah, so basically, what happened was Katzenberg had started having these meetings on a regular basis, and. Roy Disney in the film points out the fact that he was having them at like Sunday, uh, having them on like Sunday mornings at like eight o'clock in the morning, and no one wanted to be there at eight o'clock on a Sunday. And basically, Roy told Katzenberg that the next time he has a meeting this early on a Sunday, that Roy was just going to show up in his in his like his PJs, his pajamas, and his sleeping coat, and. That's when Katzenberg basically said, you know, Roy, what you need is your own Jeffrey Katzenberg. Because Katzenberg was basically like Michael Eisner's right-hand man running the film department. So then that's when Roy brought in Peter Schneider. And basically, Peter Schneider was open to all sorts of creative ideas and inputs and criticism. But... It was said in the documentary that the only thing that Peter would not allow to be criticized was the marketing department. So when the marketing department decided that that they were going to change the name of the movie from Basil of Baker Street to Great Mouse Detective, as you said, that's when that memo went around because people were just completely fed up and they, they hated the name The Great Mouse Detective. Personally... You know, I understand the I I understand the sentimentality behind Basil Baker Street. I think Ma- the Great Mouse Detective is a much better film, to be honest. Trying to trying to target it towards kids, which is yeah. what it was. I I think that's the better title. I think the marketing department went with the right title. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, people nobody was gonna know what Basil Baker Street is. Great Mouse Detective, perfect. But another thing that got the animators kind of pissed off was the fact that Jeffrey Katzenberg came out during one of the one of his meetings and said that he didn't care about Academy Awards. All he cared about was the Bank of America Awards, which basically meant he only cared about how much money the movies made at the box office. He didn't care about the 
the critical uh, acclaim. He didn't care about like insider awards like the Oscars, the, the Golden Globes. He wanted to make money off this uh, off of the movies, and that's all he cared about. And he came right out and told the animators that during one of his meetings, and that pissed a lot of people off. Yeah. They were they were not too. I mean, I I feel like Katzenberg pissed off a lot of people. I mean, I'll get more into it, but I mean, you know how much I ranted on him a couple weeks ago when we did when when we did Muppet Christmas Carol. But oh, that's who you ranted on was Katzenberg. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he was the one that cut the 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 most important song from that movie, and we'll get to it because he almost did it again with another fucking animated film, but we'll get to that very, very shortly. So, anyways, the, like I said, animators were told that they could be critical of anything but the marketing department. That memo got sent around, and it even ended up becoming a category on Jeopardy a year later, which was fucking hilarious. I don't know how Jeopardy man should get a hold of that memo, but that that was fantastic. Apparently, Peter Schneider was beyond livid at the fact that somebody did that. And then I guess Katzenberg had pulled him aside and told him like not to let it get to him or whatever. And it ended up blown over, but he was really pissed off about it at the time. Mm-hmm. Great Mouse Detective ended up doing well at the box office, but it did end up getting beat out by the first animated feature directed by Steven Spielberg, An American Tale, as Spielberg had wanted to start getting into more and more animated films, and An American Tale was like sort of his his first big one, and that beat out Great Mouse Detective at the at the box office, but Great Mouse Detective still did much, much better than what Black Cauldron did. So, you know, they sort of counted it as a small success. We then see a bunch, we're then shown a bunch of media clips with Roy E. Disney, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Michael Eisner on various press junkets around the release of Oliver and Company, because that was the next movie up after Great Mouse Detective. And in one clip, Michael Eisner is asked if the company can afford to keep doing animated films because they were talking about how each animated frame of a film cost upwards of $10 million. So the interviewer asked him point blank, can, can you keep affording to do animated movies with how much it costs? And Eisner came right out and said, no, but we're doing it anyways. We have to do it. Essentially, that's what this company is, is its animated film department. So no matter how much money it costs to make these films, they were going to keep doing it because that's what their legacy was. And then after that, we see another clip of an interview of Roy and Katzenberg together talking about their plans to do at least one animated feature film a year for the for the Disney animated department. The movie then talks about the creation of the VCR and home video and the fact that Pinocchio was the first Disney film released on home video on VHS. And at the time, Disney re-released their classic animated films in movie theaters once every seven years. And that was that's a practice that they would then carry over into their home video releases, as anybody that's had to deal with the Disney Vault knows that they would release their classic animated films on home video for a brief time, and then it would go back into the vault again for seven years before they re-released it. But that was a practice that they used to have in terms of releasing it in theaters. They would release it once every seven years, and then once home video came, they transitioned it in that way. But basically... Home video really helped in terms of revenue for Disney because they didn't have to pay to have the film distributed in theaters. So that cut down on a lot of cost of re-releasing these films. They could just release them on home video, produce all, all the videos and stuff, maybe spend a bit of money on the advertisements, on on commercials, that sort of thing, but they weren't having to spend as much as they would have if they had to completely redistribute them to theaters. So they were making more money on home video than they would have re-releasing these these classic films in, in theater. So that started to become more of where Disney w- would focus 
and and get their money from is from the the home video releases. Yeah, that's that was smart to switch it over to that. Yeah, and they didn't have to pay licensing fees either. That was another thing that they saved on because you have to pay license uh, in in addition to theatrical distribution fees, you have to pay licensing fees to the theater. So they they cut down on that as well and the success of Pinocchio led to other classic films being released on home video and then as well as direct to video movies and sequels which would more so come later like after 94 is sort of when they started to do more sequels and stuff as direct to video features and then because of the success of home video sales that helped bring in more money for them to pay for future projects and one of the ones that they mentioned that it helped pay for was Beauty and the Beast because that was a movie that Walt wanted to make at one time but he sort of put it on the back burner and then it never really got made because they didn't really have the money to fund it and now with home video they could put that into movies that they had wanted to do in the past but weren't able to. Then we're in 1987, and as as 1987 rolled around with the success of Great Mouse Detective and the home video release of Pinocchio and a few other titles, Disney was back in high demand, and their live-action movie department and their theme parks were doing very, very well. But the animated film department was still in limbo. Was still in limbo. People still didn't know if they had job security or not, because again, it was still costing more to make these movies than they were bringing back in. Little Mermaid and Roger Rabbit were being made at the same time, but Roger Rabbit ended up running over budgets. And Don Han brings up at one point because Little Mermaid they were producing in the states. And Roger Rabbit was being made in London. And and basically, they had run so over budget that Katzenberg was capping the the money. He wasn't going to spend another dime on Roger Rabbit. But (laughs) what Katzenberg did was he paid for private cars and private planes to bring all the animators from London back to the States to tell them that they wouldn't be spending another dime on the movie and then paid for them to go back to London to finish up the movie with whatever money that they had left. <laughs> so they just wasted this, 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 a whole bunch of money for a meeting that Katzenberg could have flown over himself for. And, and if it was just Katzenberg flying to London instead of the entire animation department flying from London to the States, it probably would have saved them a lot more money. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Having said that, Roger Rabbit ended up being a huge box office and critical success, and it led to a huge return financially, a big profit return. So even though it went over budget, it still did really, really well and ended up returning more than, than what it cost to make it. So they just absolutely knocked it out of the park. And that was that was a movie that was directed by Steven Spielberg because Spielberg had wanted to work with Disney, but when he was getting into the animated into the animated feature films, like really no one wanted to sort of be associated with Disney. Even if they wanted to work with Disney, Disney was so poison that people would stay away to save their own careers. And then once Disney started to do better with Great Mouse Detective and 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 Oliver and Company, Brave Little Toaster, more people want to come back on. So that's when Spielberg came on f- to direct Roger Rabbit, and it ended up being just a huge, huge success. Yeah. Now, at the time of Roger, at the time of Roger Rabbit's release, they were still working on The Little Mermaid, and. Howard Ashman and Ellen Menken were brought in to do the music for Little Mermaid, and then there was a there's a big sequent uh, a big segment in the documentary focusing on the music of the Little Mermaid as well as Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and their careers before Disney, and they would end up going on to do the music of a bunch of Disney. A bunch of different Disney films. They did Little Mermaid. They did Beauty and the Beast. They did Aladdin. So 
yeah, they. Uh, I'm pretty they, sure they did Lion King as well, right? Pretty much, I'm pretty sure like Alan Menken and well Howard Ashman up until Beauty and the Beast, and I guess a little bit of Aladdin because then he passed away. Well, Lion, Lion King that. was out in John and Tim Rice, was it not? Was Alan Menken not on that as well? I feel like Alan Menken was kind of on like all of those after once he came in, right? I I, I could be wrong. I I'd have to double check if he was on Lion King. Howard unfortunately passed away before Lion King. Menken may have been, but I think Lion King was pretty much all Elton John and Tim Rice. Yeah, because I know Tim Rice came in to do Aladdin as well. Yeah, right? he, he came in to... Yeah, yeah, after after Ashman passed, they got Tim Rice to come in. Yeah, I know, but seeing some of those clips for Little Mermaid with, with Howard Ashman just kind of going through the songs of, like, part of, going through part of your world with Jody Benson, that was pretty cool to see. And then how he came, I think it was, it was it was Ashman's idea to make Sebastian Jamaican, right? Yes. And then like, and seeing that, you know, the, how he's like, you know, did it. Oh man, that was, that was really cool. I really like that because we you know we just did Little Mermaid not too long ago as well, right? Correct. Yeah, was, no, from what I can see, Alan Menken had no, no, uh, no input with, uh, with Lion King. It was Elton John and Tim Rice. But yeah, so they, Alan Menken and, and Howard Ashman, like you said, they were brought in to do Little Mermaid, which we reviewed a few weeks ago. And yeah, it was Howard Ashman's idea to make Sebastian Jamaican. And it, it was it was just really great to, to see the behind the scenes process of Menken and Ashman working with not only the, the, the vocalists and the actors, but, you know, having their meetings, talking to the animated department about how they saw saw the music fit in with the, with the with the rest of the movie. Now, it was brought up that during a screening for Little Mermaid, Katzenberg felt that the song Part of Your World really didn't connect with the audience and Katzenberg was going to cut Part of Your World and everybody ended up fighting on, fighting him on it and I think Ashman even threatened to choke him if he cut that got that song from the movie. So he eventually kept it in. But again, you know, they talk about how part of your world was like the heart of that movie. Like that's that's the song that really sets up the movie the rest of the way through. And it's the same thing with with the one from a Muppet Christmas Carol, When Love Is Gone. That was the heart of the that song was the heart of the movie. And fucking Katzenberg decided to cut it. And he almost fucking cut a part of your world, but enough people fought him on The Little Mermaid that he didn't cut it. I wish there were people that had the balls with a Muppet Christmas Carol to fight Katzenberg as hard as the crew on Little Mermaid fought him. Katzenberg doesn't know what the fuck he's doing when it comes to the music department, I'll, I'll tell you that much. But, <laughs> but I digress. Little Mermaid was a critical and commercial success. Part of the money from the success got put into buying computers to help better animate movies in the future. The company they invested $10 million into and bought computers from was Pixar, which at the time wasn't as big as it is now. Pixar was basically had basically just started playing around with the idea of computer animation. They had done a few computer animated Listerine commercials, but no, they even bring this up in the film. No one had even done a short animated feature on on these computers, let alone a full-length feature film, which is what Disney Animated Studios was about to attempt to do with The Rescuers. Yeah, and, and they went to Frank Wells to get the check and like, hey, we need $10 million for this. And, you know, he's like, what? Yeah, well, yeah, because Roy, Roy, Roy Disney went into Frank Wells' office, yeah. and Frank was basically like, "What are you doing here, Roy?" And Roy's retort was, "I'm here to make sure you sign that check, Frank." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Fra- Frank Wells was said to be like, we, you, "You said it before about how they talk about uh, there was a lot of tension between Katzenberg, Eisner, and and Roy Disney." Well, Frank Wells was apparently the guy to talk to and calm the three of them down, basically. Yep. Right? Yep. I do have points on that later on, but you are correct on that point. And like I said, the first, you know, a lot of us think of Toy Story as the first Disney-Pixar collaboration for a movie. 
But in reality, it was really The Rescuers Down Under, uh, a sequel to the 19, I think, 77 was when the original Rescuers came out. But basically, they used the computer to animate and color in all the all the drawings and stuff that the that the artist has come up with. So this was the first Disney Pixar collaboration, even though Pixar's name wasn't on it because Pixar hadn't created the studio yet. It was just their computers that were used for the animation. But yeah, I, I, I think that's a fun little piece of trivia because most people, if you ask them what was the first Disney Pixar collaboration, they're going to say Toy Story like right off the bat. But really, it was yeah. Rescuers Down Under. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, I would have said Toy Story for sure. And Rescuers Down Under also became the first computer-slash-digitally-animated feature film ever, but it ended up being a box office flop. They said, they said in the movie that it only made $5 million its opening weekend. It really only made, like, $3.7, $3.8 However, like, when you look at the movies it was up against, it's opening week, like, there's... It's not a surprise that it didn't do well. Here are the here are the movies that beat it out at the box office because it did end up finishing fourth on its opening weekend, but it was up against Home Alone, which just was a fucking fantastic film and has become a a, a Christmas a so called Christmas classic. It was up against Rocky Five and it was up against Child's Play Two. So. You had these huge, successful movies, two of which were already established franchises, and it's it, when you look at that, it's really not a surprise that Rescuers Down Under didn't do as well as it possibly could have, but because it, it made such a low amount on its opening weekend, Jeffrey Katzenberg decided to pull all the financing and stuff from the ad revenue, and basically they just didn't promote it anymore after opening weekend so it ended up flopping even more because you know after opening weekend no one even knew it was out because there would be no advertising for it yeah that was that was kind of crazy when i don't remember who got that call but i know katzenberg was the one who pulled everything right yeah so the guy whoever whoever was talking to like he's like what do you mean you pulled he's like i pulled it don't worry we're going on to the next one and the guy started crying he's like it's okay just move to the next one yep However, because of the underperformance of Rescuers Down Under, that led to the next film that was being worked on to have its, uh, to have its budget slashed. And that movie, that was the victim of that, ended up being Beauty and the Beast. Mm, yes, yeah. They brought, in, they brought in a director for this specific movie. Yes, Richard, they, Richard Purdom. Yeah, Richard Purdom. And they made about, what, 20 minutes of the film? And he, he did not think that they were going to scrap it, but that's what they did. Well, it was Don, Don Han that didn't think they were going to scrap it because Don Han was the, was the producer on it, on Beauty and the Beast. But yeah, they made 20 minutes of it. And originally, Beauty and the Beast wasn't going to be a musical. It was just going to be a straight up animated film, very much in the style of original classic Disney movies with a story rather than a focus on story rather than a focus on the musical aspects. But Katzenberg scratched it after like completely scratched the film after the first 20 minutes. And when Richard Purdom realized that Katzenberg had no intent to make the movie that Purdom had envisioned, he quit the project. And then two of the story artists who were working on the movie at the time, Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale, they then became the quote-unquote acting directors because there, were no, there was no one else to direct the film. So these yeah. two basically just got promoted up to directors. <laughs> Gary and Kirk both went on to co-direct Hunchback of Notre Dame as well as Atlantis the Lost Empire. And Gary also directed a bunch of the Shrek animated short features. So not the actual theatrical releases, but like the Shrek Christmas specials and that sort of thing. Gary ended up directing. So this would not be the last project that they would direct, but they haven't directed a whole bunch of movies since then. Just a couple of things here and there. The, the documentary talks about how Beauty and the Beast was starting to fall apart and Katzenberg was hosting an annual like Hollywood get together party at his beach house. 
and Howard Ashman was there, and Katzenberg decided to ask Howard to do the music for Beauty and the Beast. And at first, Howard was reluctant because he was already focused on creating the music for Aladdin, which was a film that he really felt strongly about and was really involved in, but he did end up agreeing to do it, and him and Mencken teamed up again to help out with the music for Beauty and the Beast, officially turning Beauty and the Beast into a a musical. We then see Mencken and Ashman win the 1990 Academy Awards for their work on the music for The Little Mermaid. And Alan Menken tells a story about how after the Oscars, Howard basically came up and approached him and told him that he was HIV positive. Although Alan Alan thinks that more accurately, Howard just said that I'm sick. But Howard had HIV, unfortunately. And on on March 14th, 1991, Howard Ashman ended up passing away, which is really unfortunate because he created a lot of really, really good music. And like, I don't want to get too heavy here, but... You know, that was during a time when AIDS and HIV were taking a lot of people's lives because we just, at the time, didn't have enough research and knowledge on the subject and people weren't being treated for it the way they can be today. So it back then, it literally was a death sentence if you were, if you were HIV positive. And as we mentioned earlier, after Howard had passed, Tim Rice was brought in to finish the music for Aladdin. Howard had finished the music for Beauty and the Beast before he had passed. The movie hadn't been released yet, but it had pretty much been all but completed. They were, at the time of his passing, they were starting to do the screenings for it, show it around at like film festivals and stuff like that. But unfortunately, Howard, it's mentioned in the movie, never did get to see the final completed feature film for Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, they, they, they talk about how they sent a rough draft, basically, of Beauty and the Beast to the, I think it was the New York Film Festival. Yeah. And that was the first time they've ever sent one of the Disney movies to the film festival. And it just got a standing ovation and everybody was going crazy for that. And yep. then after that's when they all went to the hospital to go see him. And, you know, they said when they were when they were all saying their goodbyes, I think it was I think it was Mencken who was like, you know, who, who would have thought that this movie would would be a hit? And he said, I did. Yeah. And um, then, uh, yeah. But after the rap on Beauty and the Beast and after all of the acclaim it was getting from screenings and film festivals, it started to become more and more clear for everybody that worked in the animated department that there was a rift going on between Roy Disney, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and and Michael Eisner. More so between Roy and Katzenberg because they were around the animated department more than Eisner was. And for the record, if you're watching the video podcast, that's not Michael Eisner in the picture. It's Roy Disney, Katzenberg, and, and, and Peter Schneider. I'm sure there's one that exists with Eisner and Disney and Katzenberg, but I couldn't find one when I was doing a quick Google search to put this all together. But anyways, so the rift started to happen and become more visible. And around that time, Jeffrey Katzenberg started to promote himself more and more, and that infuriated Roy. And, you know, Michael, there's an audio clip of Michael Eisner saying he really didn't care how Katzenberg handled himself or if he promoted himself as long as he was promoting the movies as well, because the movies were the priority. But Eisenberg, or sorry, Katzenberg promoting himself really sort of put a strain on his relationship with Disney because Roy felt that the, the movies and not the individual should be the focal, the focal point. So again, Eisner didn't initially care as long as Katzenberg was mainly promoting the Disney films. And this is where it's brought up that Frank Wells was the glue that held them all together. So whenever they had issues with each other, they would go to Frank 
and he would basically be the mediator to sort of calm things down and work things out and make sure people's egos were kept in check because it was said that what Frank Wells really did not have much of an ego. He put the business before himself, so he was the glue that held them together. The animosity between Eisner, Disney, and Katzenberg became apparent, really became apparent to staff during the speeches at the staff screening party for Beauty and the Beast. At the screening, Michael announced that a new that there was going to be a new studio created on the Disney lot for the animation department seven years after they had been kicked out from the Disney lot and moved to Glendale, California. And Jeffrey was furious because he had not been notified at all about the fact that there was going to be a new animation studios on the Disney lot. And Katzenberg basically felt like he was the one that really helped build the animated studio back up and, and bring it to prominence and that he should have at least been consulted about this. So he felt insulted that no one had really mentioned it to him and that this was a bombshell that was just being dropped on him at the at the cast and crew screening party for the movie. Beauty and the Beast ended up winning the Best Musical Comedy Picture at the Golden Globes and it got nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, which was a huge feat for an animated film at that time. And it still is. You still don't really see a whole lot of animated films get nominated. But yeah, at the time it was huge. And it was also only the third Disney film to be nominated for uh, a Best Picture Academy Award. The others being Silence of the... Or not Silence of the Lambs. Um, (laughs) Dead Poet Society and I think... Mary Mary Poppins. I think Mary Poppins. I didn't. I know Dead Poet Society for sure, but I didn't write down the other one. But I think it was Mary Poppins. But anyway, Silence of the Lambs did end up beating out Beauty and the Beast for the Academy Award. But yeah, it was huge. The fact that an animated feature film had been nominated, and the fact that it was only the third time a Disney anime or a Disney film period had been nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Award. So it was huge. The animators were exhausted from overwork and uh, from doing like one feature film a year. And then with all the success they had, you know, they ended up going to all these award shows and all these parties and stuff, too. So they were overworked and exhausted, but they kept pushing themselves to do better because they had gotten accustomed to reaping the award, the rewards of their work. And then that's when it's mentioned about all the people that used to work with Disney coming back to work for them again. Like Tim Burton came back for Nightmare Before Christmas, as we had mentioned earlier. Disney Animated Studios did try to lure John Lasseter back to their animated department. But at the time, he was with Pixar. And Pixar had decided that they wanted to start up their own studio to make animated films. So because Disney couldn't lure John Lasseter away, what they decided to do was strike a deal with John Lasseter and Pixar to co-produce a movie. That movie, of course, being Toy Story. And then that led to the Disney-Pixar animated partnership that we have today. But it basically started because, well, I mean, we mentioned about Rescuers Down Under, but basically the fact that Pixar wanted to start their own animated studios, and it's not really mentioned in the film, but Disney really didn't want that competition. So they basically worked out a deal where they would be, where, where they would co-produce movies with each other. And it was, it was mentioned that it was Peter Schneider that, that struck that deal to, to co-produce movies with, with Pixar. More and more Disney animated studios were opening all around the world in order to produce more films more frequently, but everybody in Disney animation was being spread way too thin. Again, going back to the whole being overworked thing, but again, they were reaping the the reward, so they were going to do what they had to. And then in 1992, Aladdin opened and became the first animated film to gross over $200 million at the box office. 
and there's a clip of Peter Schneider talking about the animated feature's success, and he talks about how the entire company rallied around the success of Aladdin, and they ended up selling more merchandise, more attractions, and stuff of that sort, and that led to more revenue from Aladdin for Disney, although there's no mention of the fact that this caused a huge rift between Robin Williams and Disney, specifically Robin Williams and Jeffrey Katzenberg, because when Robin Williams agreed to play the genie on Aladdin, he didn't want the film marketed around him, he didn't want, like, merchandise marketed around his character, and basically Jeffrey Katzenberg and and Peter Schneider reneged on that and just did it anyways, just went against Robin's wishes, and that ended up causing a rift, and Robin just straight up refused to work with on any Disney films for a couple of years after that, which is why in Return of Jafar, the genie is voiced by somebody other than Robin Williams, just because of this huge rift, because Disney had put the focus on marketing, and Robin Williams had specifically asked them not to do that. But again, there wasn't a mention of that in this film, and I really wish there had been. And while everybody at Disney was celebrating the success of Aladdin, the animators were back at work creating The Lion King, and a few months into the animation work, Katzenberg called a meeting between the two teams working on Lion King and Pocahontas, because both movies were being created at the same time, and Katzenberg basically made it seem like he had no faith in Lion King, and that Pocahontas was going to be the bigger success of the two. And that basically made the animators of Lion King feel like they just didn't want to continue work on the movie. And a lot of the animators from The Lion King even switched over to work on Pocahontas because they had been led to believe that it was going to be the bigger of the two movies. Once again, just another example of Katzenberg being a complete fucking dumbass and putting his own foot in his fucking mouth and not really knowing what he's goddamn doing. Like, it doesn't matter if you... It, it doesn't fucking matter if you think that one movie is going to be bigger than the other. As a fucking executive, you don't let the people working on the movie know that. That's when you're basically, like, giving them complete reason to fucking give up on working on it and, and just causing complete demotivization. Uh, de de that's not even a word, but I'm making it a word. I feel, I feel like, was, wasn't he so, like, into Pocahontas just from the name? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, Pocahontas was a great movie, and it was a success as well, but, like, the fact that he thought that that was going to be better than The Lion King? Yeah, the name and the, th and the theme of it with the, with the Indians and, and the, well, sorry. I, I think in the movie they, they say Indians, but Native Americans and, and you know, the British and the whole colonization thing. Katzenberg thought that would be a more appealing story, apparently. But yeah, just a complete fucking dumbass. Again, it goes back to the fact of it doesn't matter if you think it's going to be a bigger success. You don't fucking tell your teams that. You don't. You still try to motivate the other team to complete the film. And then you leave it up to the box office to decide which of the two films is going to be better. You don't exactly. You, you don't like just demotivate your fucking staff by being like, "Oh yeah, this film is going to not be that good compared to this other amazing film that we have." Like it's just oh fuck. Like I said on the Muppet Christmas Carol review, Jeffrey Katzenberg is the black eye on Disney films. Like, I know he gets a lot of the credit for the the rebirth of Disney animation and the Disney renaissance, but man, he did a lot of harm to it as well, and I think it, I think there are some things that could have been even bigger successes than, than they were if Katzenberg had not been involved, but Katzenberg's a fucking idiot. <laughs> Specifically in my notes, I call him a fucking dumbass. Tell me how you really feel about Katzenberg there, Dave. Fuck, I hate that guy. God damn it. He should never be allowed to work in movies again. That guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. He just took credit on the backs of giants. But anyways, during production on The Lion King, the rift between Roy, Michael, and Jeffrey grew more and more. And unfortunately, on April 3rd, 1994, 
the glue that held them all together, Frank Wells, died in a helicopter crash. And after Frank's death, Katzenberg wanted to take over as president of Disney Corporation. However, Roy did not want to see that happen. And Michael was uncomfortable with Katzenberg making press junkets more and more about himself rather than the company and the movies. Also, the fact that Michael felt Jeffrey was too eager to get Frank's job after Frank had died instead of just being patient and giving time for people to grieve the loss of Frank. Eisner did not like how Katzenberg handled the situation and basically, you know, wanted to take over right away. And right around the time of Frank Wells's death, there was an article that came out, I think they said in the Wall Street Journal, that pretty much made it seem like Katzenberg had single-handedly been the reason for Disney's turnaround from near breakup almost a decade ago. Because basically Katzenberg invited these journalists in to tour the Disney studios. But the, the story really focused more around Katzenberg and how Katzenberg made, the, made Disney studios turn around and become profitable again. And no one really liked the idea of that at all. And because of that rift between Roy, Michael, and Jeffrey, and the fact that neither Michael or Roy wanted Katzenberg to become president of Disney Corporation, Disney Company, that's when Jeffrey Katzenberg ended up just leaving the film department and leaving Disney altogether. And then we cut back to the pre-taped cast and crew speeches that we saw at the beginning of the movie from Michael, Roy, and Jeffrey. And that's when it's mentioned that after the premiere of The Lion King, Jeffrey Katzenberg resigned from Disney. But yeah, overall, this was a this was a really interesting and well put together documentary. I had no idea what to expect going in, but it really gives good detail into the behind the scenes of the Disney Renaissance for their animated films. Because a lot of people just see the Renaissance and they see the the reinvigorated success of Disney animated films and you know you don't really get to see the behind the scenes of that too often you don't get to see the infighting and all the conflict that that was going on while these movies were succeeding and bringing Disney back to prominence and I just I thought it was a really good unique look and I just really really enjoyed this film yeah no I I I messaged you like right away. I think it was like halfway through the movie. I said, this is an excellent choice. This is something I never didn't know what it was, obviously, because I remember when you sent me that list of the four movies, the first thing I said was, what is Waking Sleeping Beauty? Yeah. And you told me, I was like, okay, that should be interesting. And then like the next day, you're like, okay, let's do this. And halfway through, I'm like, okay, this is awesome. Because again, it reminded me of the first couple episodes of the Imagineering story. And I don't know. I thought it was really well done, really great to see a lot of those old school like home clips as like as you said right and seeing some of those behind the scene things with with robin williams doing the voice of of uh of the genie and you know like i, I mentioned it before uh, ashman with jody benson and and, and even there when they had when they were talking about beauty and the beast at one point you see like angela lansbury there and i, yep. I thought that was really cool yep so i mean Overall, if you had to give this film, well, I mean, you're going to have to give this film a rating because <laughs> that's that's what we do. What would you give this film? I'd give this a, like an eight or nine. Like this is this is really, really well done. Yeah, I think I think I'm going to give it an eight. It would rank higher. However, there's Too much Katzenberg for you. Not just not too much Katzenberg, but the fact that like they didn't really focus on things that I would have liked to have seen them focus on. Like I mentioned earlier, the the fact that the marketing of Aladdin caused that rift with with Katzenberg Robin and Robin Williams. Williams and Robin Williams and Disney. So I mean, it did do a good job covering a lot of the the rifts and tension and everything going on behind the scenes. But there were other aspects that I would have liked to have seen them cover more. So overall, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this an eight. But it was it was a really really well done documentary. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely really well done. Having said that, as we said at the beginning of the show, guys, you can follow us on social medias. 
we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. We are on Instagram at Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod. On Twitter at Ocho and Ortiz Disney. Or sorry, at Ocho Ortiz Disney. And you can find us on most major podcasts and platforms. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And our main source of uploading is Podbean. Ocho and Ortiz Disney Pod dot Podbean dot com. Again, I am working on getting our Patreon up and running. Our episodes are going to start being released bi-weekly instead of weekly. So apologies for that. But, you know, I just want to have more time to work on these. Seeing as how we do the videos and the audio, I just want more time to work on them so I can release them both at the same time instead of having the videos released like two or three days after the audio is released. And I feel like I'm forgetting something, but I guess we'll just wrap it up because I can't remember. So, (laughs) (laughs) Josh, any any final thoughts or words before we go? Thanks for listening. If you haven't seen this movie, go watch it because it's really, really good. And yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Yep. And as always, guys, whether you're watching in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, whatever time of day it is, where you are, when you're listening or watching... We hope you have a great day. We thank you for listening. We appreciate you listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.